Sometimes after the children sing, children, the youth, they don't like some of them to be called children anymore, and indeed they're beginning to go past that, that it's hard to follow. But hey, really, my job's already over half done. You're already inspired. So that makes it easier, really. A question occurred to me, now that it's time to begin a feast series, a new series, what is the book in the Bible that we use most frequently? Now, this little group has been alive for now about 15 years. Actually, today is the anniversary of the first actual meeting 15 years ago of this group. Uh, we had the first phone hookup on, uh, at Trumpets of that year and another at Atonement, but the Feast of Tabernacles uh, was the first time that a group gathered. Uh, the word 60 was mentioned this morning, or the number in terms of that first feast, but the actual number was 70, which I thought at the time was quite interesting that uh, such a little group would begin with that number. <clears throat> I don't know that it has any great significance, but it just seemed like a good number. At any rate, we have gone through a great deal of the Bible in these 15 years. We spent a lot of time in the prophecies, more than I think the church did in the past. Uh, Of the four Gospels, I think I refer probably to Matthew more than any of the others, just by dint of habit and Perhaps sometimes the detail that Matthew gives. But in your mind, think back and consider the use of God's Word over the last 15 years. And what book would you say we go to and use the most? That was mentioned this morning, and I had it in mind to say that... On the year of release, every seven years, we are told in the book of Deuteronomy to read that book every seventh year at the feast. Now, we did that a few years ago. I don't remember now what the year was, but it was on my mind that that should be done, and we did it. Now, as you here know, we have decided to converge our third tithe observance, so that we're all keeping the same cycle uh, of seven years toward the Jubilee. And this is the year that we begin after the feast, the third tithe year again for everyone. We've had to adjust our schedules because in the past it was uh, based on either your bap- the, the feast nearest your baptism, be that Passover, or be it Feast of Tabernacles, that you counted the year. It was just something that they arbitrarily came up with uh, to begin that count for you as an individual. But Israel did it all together, and they were to observe seven times seven, 49 years, and then have the Jubilee. Now, we may or may not at this point know when the Jubilee is, and I think that God hid that fairly well on purpose lest we know exactly when the 6,000 years uh, were up. But at any rate, we used the best knowledge we had, and we thought we would begin together 
after the feast this year with our third tithe year. So something that we all do together, and then from now on we will be in sync with each other, uh, which I think is powerful before God. And in in terms of being blessed in the sixth year, for the seventh and eighth year, perhaps our effort together, instead of being disjointed, might have some bearing on how God chooses to bless. So we shall see on that. So the book of Deuteronomy is a very, very important book. Now, if you've already turned there, that's not where we're going. It is interesting to me that this morning in the sermon, quite a few references were made to this book in which I'm headed. And the sermon at this afternoon had several references to it as well. Now, if you can remember a sermon, sermon from this morning and a sermonette from a few minutes ago, you might be getting warm. We use the book of Psalms every week. Music was mentioned in both the sermon and the sermonette. Every service we have, be it a new moon Bible study, be it a Sabbath service, we begin singing hymns from where? The Psalms. So today alone, we will sing ten of the Psalms. Five this morning and five this afternoon in the service. Ten of the Psalms we will sing from on this day only. I had not really thought of that until I began to cogitate on it. Uh, I guess it was early this morning that thought came to mind. But it's the most commonly used. We use it every week. There's no other book that we go to every week. And I do believe that Herbert Armstrong was inspired to have his brother set the Psalms to music. We know that many, or if not most, most of the Psalms actually were poems or songs written primarily by David and by a few others to God. And to have them set to music... We didn't do it the same way David did. I do not know how his music sounded. They used different instruments, the harps, the cornets, the flutes, the timbrels, various things that they had in that day, trumpets. Uh, Today, the music is set to the piano, which is really, in some respects, uh, a syncretism of several other instruments put together into one. So... We use the piano, and I hope that it is a pleasing sound to God, the way Dwight put those, the music to the Psalms. Maybe not perfect, but uh, I think it had the right spirit behind it. Some have said, well, Dwight Armstrong was never converted, and indeed he was never baptized. And yet at the same time, he was very friendly with the church and came and sat often on the front row. And though God may not have called him to be a member during this life, uh, at least he was very well disposed toward the church and friendly with it. And I do think that God was able to use him to produce the hymns that we sing every week. 
There is such great meaning in the Psalms. Now, as an overall comment, uh, scholars have divided the songs into or the Psalms into five different sections, and indeed the Jews of old also use that five-part uh, separation of the Psalms. I won't go into all of the chapters on that at this point. Beginning, we'll get to those perhaps a little later on. But the first section goes from chapter 1 through 41. And they've kind of broken this down uh, according to the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And indeed, there are parallels that can be easily seen between those first five books and the way that the Psalms are divided. Uh, The first section, 1 through 41, uh, they liken to Genesis, the story of man, the story of man's beginnings with God, the story of how it went very badly, and eventually God had to destroy mankind except for eight souls and start all over again. And then how it still did not go too well, with the exception of a few individuals. So, they break it into chapters 1 through 8, about man and the son of man. Uh, 9 through 15, as the man of the earth. And then 16 through 41, the man, as they say, Christ Jesus, or Emmanuel as we use it. So it's all about man's beginnings and the difficulties and so on between God and man. It has flashes into the future. It has quite a bit to say in the first section about Christ himself coming as the answer to man's problems. So it flashes back and forth. Now, there is more by far to the Psalms than just a summary or a symbolism throughout or a simile of the first five books of the Bible. For one thing, uh, we are here at the Feast of Tabernacles to depict the millennium, a time when Christ will come to the earth and rule and David will be king of all Israel. Christ will be king of kings and lord of lords over the entire earth. David will be the king of Israel. So, I think it is appropriate that we approach the Psalms during this period of time. I almost did last year, but another subject contravened and it didn't happen. But this year, it just seemed to fit, and already in the sermonettes and sermons... I'm hearing a lot about the Psalms. Maybe there's more there at times than I notice, and I was more aware of it today. I don't know, but that's kind of the way it happened. But, I told you in a recent sermon, I guess my last one, about the various things that God says about the ministry here at the end time and how it has not been the right kind of ministry, and God blew it apart because of misuse and abuse spiritually of the people and money and everything else that went with it. But nonetheless, 
He says we are not to be reed shaken in the wind. We are not to be tossed about and give an uncertain sound of the trumpet. That we are to cry aloud, spare not. That we are to uh, howl and cry. And all of those terms that we saw in many, many scriptures. And that is the kind of warning and wake-up call and message that God requires here at the end because the church was entirely Laodicea, including you, me, and everyone else, even though many think they are the only Philadelphians and do not change as a result because they think there's nothing wrong with them. But there was something wrong with all of us, and that's why God spewed us from His mouth. So every... Scripture that has to do with the church at the end time has to do with making a great deal of noise about us and what we need to do. John the Baptist came preaching repentance, and they hated that. They didn't want to hear a strong message. And yet Christ said, what did you expect of John? A reed shaken in the wind? No, he came to give a hard message. That is what we are required by many, many scriptures to do in the end time. And you cannot find one that says smooth and easy. And in fact, the two or three references that it makes to that is that it's the wrong kind. And that they are dogs that cannot bark and sleep on the porch, too fat and lazy to get up and bark. Now contrast that, if you will, with the rain of David. If you go to Ezekiel 34, which is one of the primary ones where God got on us as a ministry uh, in, in the book of Ezekiel. I mean, there's Jeremiah 23 and Malachi 1, and I'm very familiar with all those. But in that particular one, as it goes on down in the context, it talks about how he will send David, and David will be king of Israel at that time, and he'll gently lead and and hold the sheep and take kind, gentle care of them. And it goes on and on quite a bit about that. So, that is a millennial setting. And the entire approach at that time is going to be different. So, as we go through the Psalms, and I don't know how long this will take, I thought the series on honoring our Father was long. Uh, I think we're looking at three, four years here the way I go. No, I'm kidding. We'll, we'll get through it quicker than that, he says. <clears throat> I don't intend to take that long. There are other things on the table that need to be addressed as well. But going into the feast, I think it is a neat time to consider how David approached people, how he approached God, the many and varied types of prayers that David gave, so, here we have a look into the mind of he who will be king of Israel during the millennium. And more is said in Psalms about David than any other place. Now, yes, you can go into Kings and, and Samuel and so on and read a great deal about the acts of David, the problems of David, and so on and so forth. But the Psalms give us insight into his mind, into his prayers. Not just his acts, not just a history of his life, which is also instructive. But we are here to be kings and priests with Christ 
in the millennium and reign for a thousand years here on this earth. Now, we need to have the mind of Christ. That is clearly obvious to think as he thought. And there is much about the mind and their inner emotions and feelings and prayers of Christ himself in the Psalms. And much of what he went through. And in fact, he said on several occasions that prophecies about him were given in the past. So the things he said, the things he prayed, the things he did, the sufferings he went through are all chronicled in the Psalms. And in fact, come Passover time, we read Psalm 22, 23, uh, and sometimes others, as well as Isaiah 53, and several of those that have to do with his sufferings and so on. But much of his mind and how it worked is right here in this book, as is the way David's mind worked. Now, over the years, sometimes I've read some of the Psalms of David, and I thought, man, how did he say that to God? Now, some of them are of praise and glory and hallelujah to God, and I don't have a problem with that, but when David was fighting his attitudes and fighting his enemies and fighting himself, some of the things he said were almost on the border of disrespect or telling God it's your fault. Maybe it didn't quite go over that tipping point, but in some cases it seems close, and it scares me to allow my mind to go even as far as sometimes David allowed his. Now, sometimes my mind goes there and I don't allow it. Now, that's a different problem. But I mean, I try to look at those things and control and not let my mind go in certain places. For my sake and your sake, we have to guard the doors of our mind and be sure our attitudes don't become in any way bitter or resentful or blaming God. And yet, we see David wrestling with various problems and Christ wrestling with various things that he faced. And it's all written down for us in a poetic and hymnal-inducing way. So, there is much to learn here. And I think it fits in very well with the series we just finished about where is my honor? Where is my praise? Where is the credit that I should have from my people? Because it shows from David and a few other authors of a few of the Psalms and Christ and the prophecies of him of how they approached God. So the Psalms can give us a very deep insight into the kind of relationship that we ought to have with the Father and the Son in heaven. And if we are primed to honor Him and give Him the praise and glory that He deserves, then I think it is a good opportunity to go into this book and look at the most intimate thoughts of David and of Christ as they are expressed in these poems and songs. Because in prayer, you are uncovered in a way that you are not otherwise. You know, we 
hide behind various types of facades. We hide sometimes, if we can, the way we're, what we're thinking or feeling. We don't want to reveal ourselves to others. And yet, in prayer, we will reveal ourselves to God in a way that we will not to other human beings. Sometimes we even try to put up a facade and deceive ourselves in prayer. God sees through all that, and He wants us to get right through to the deep, the depth, the heart of the way things really are inside, and for us to be honest with ourselves, not self-deceived about what we really are, and open our hearts and minds in prayer to God the way that David did, for instance, in Psalm 51, which we quote frequently. So, the depth of emotion and feeling and the right kind of relationship is expressed here in many, many different ways. So, it's something that we can use to help deepen our relationship with God. A very, very important consideration. So, let's consider that. Now, also, in some respects, the Psalms are the ultimate book of prophecy. They express thoughts about Jerusalem and Zion and the things David was going through in his day that he wrote about. Those things were still very much real and fit the situation in the days of the apostles in the early New Testament church, for they referred to the Psalms. And, of course, Christ himself in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, fulfilled many of the prophecies of the Psalms. We look upon it as writings, but there is so much prophecy it's almost unbelievable. There is much in this book about Jerusalem and Zion, the church, and those literal physical places on this earth for us here in the end time. And those prophecies go forward from there into the millennium and the great white throne judgment showing when God begins to set His hand to save the majority of people who have ever lived during the millennium and great white throne judgment. So it is a timeless book in that sense. Now this morning in the sermonette, and I know a sermonette does not have time to encompass all aspects of a subject, but quite a little was said about uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and how none of the other feast days talk about that you may come before the Eternal and learn to fear your God. That it is only used in terms of the Feast of Tabernacles. A very good point was made. But as that point was being delivered, the thought came to my mind, why? Shouldn't we come to have fear and awe of Christ at the Passover time and what He incredibly did in living a perfect life and then giving Himself for us? Shouldn't that put us in the fear of God? Yes, it does for us to some degree. Uh, I think a certain amount of fear was generated in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost when cloven tongues of fire and great sounds were made, and it must have scared everyone there. So a certain fear was instilled there, 
And can you imagine the heart-stopping fear when the Feast of Trumpets is sounded, or the trumpet is sounded of the great trumpet at the Feast of Trumpets, and Christ returns? That would instill fear. So why is it not mentioned with those, but is at the Feast of Tabernacles? I think the key to that is that Mankind today essentially does not fear God. As we get into the book of Psalms, we will see, even in the first chapter or two, the mankind tries to divorce himself from God in every way that he can. Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan. Interestingly, the word Hellel, uh, Nelson pronounces it Halel, I think it is, he says, but it's an E, it's Hellel. Uh, the interesting thing about that to me is that hell is the same. The name of Satan there in Isaiah 14 instead of Lucifer in the, in the Hebrew is Hellel. And hell comes from Satan's name. But he was there in the garden and they were deceived They did not know they were being drawn away from God, but they were. And then man himself continued that until God destroyed them in the Noatian deluge, except for eight. Now, a lot of fear was instilled as the waters rose, and glub-glub ended in death. Now, those people will be resurrected, the great white throne judgment, and the last thing in their minds will be the absolute terror of drowning. Fear. Those who live through the events of this age and come up or go into physically the millennium will have just gone through the most terrifying times in terms of events and in terms of duration that mankind has ever known. Now, it was not a prolonged fear in Noah's day. The waters rose quickly and people drowned very rapidly (coughs) and were in fear the whole time trying to get on the highest piece of ground they could find. And then perhaps the highest tree on the highest hill they could find and drowned anyway. But it was a fairly short duration. That which is coming upon us and is almost here, is truly frightening. In the news just yesterday, and it's echoed today uh, much louder, was the accusation that Iran uh, was behind a conspiracy to kill the U.S. ambassador uh, from Saudi Arabia. Uh, And our Department of Defense, Hillary and company, are shouting loudly and trying to come up with more... uh, sanctions and perhaps war with Iran. I've been expecting this more and more because I think Daniel 8 indicates that we would break the horn of Iraq, Medo and Persia, and then that of Iran, break both their horns, and then our horn will be broken. I may be wrong in that interpretation of Daniel 8, but we shall soon see. Uh, We've broken the horn of Iraq, more or less, and now we are threatening to attack Iran, 
and shortly thereafter will come our collapse and fall, if that is the correct explanation of that. Regardless of that, this nation is coming apart at the seams, the economy of the entire world is, and we're going to see a very gigantic collapse shortly. I'm not going to say weeks or months. Some pundits on Internet are saying before October, November's finished. Some say late winter. Some are saying in the spring or 2012. Uh, so God does not give us insight precisely on the timing, but we know from Zephaniah and other scriptures, Isaiah 5, that a great crash is coming and Americans will lose their houses, and that process has already begun. Many Americans are losing their homes. It says they'll build homes and not dwell in them. And on and on and on go the prophecies. So, even as we sit at a time today, beginning the picture of a millennial rule on the earth and peace throughout, and the kind of leadership that David and Christ only can provide, we see a world that is quickly coming apart, and mankind is going to live in great fear. And roughly 90% of the people, probably a little over, at least nearly 90% of Israel, and maybe even a greater number of the Gentile countries are going to die. If the statement in Daniel is fitting this situation, it appears that there will only be 100 million left when Christ begins His rule on the earth. And out of six and a half, nearly seven billion, 100 million is not very many people. About oh, less, a little more than a fourth of what we have in this nation alone will be left of all the peoples on earth. So they will have gone through great deprivation, through danger, through seeing their friends, their relatives, their neighbors, Killed before their very eyes, dying of famine, pestilence, and war. Now, will that instill fear in them? What does fear do? We touched close to it this morning in the book of Proverbs. Is it 1 verse 7 or is it 2? I forget. Now, I'm not going back there. Where it says, the fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom. Mankind has been... Foolish. We've been fools from Adam on in denying God or giving Him lip service and not obeying Him. He has the perfect way of life that leads to peace, to joy, to happiness. And mankind has a thousand other ways to try to achieve peace, joy, happiness, security, and all those things that are deep within the desire of a human being to have. And yet we come up empty because we're such fools and will not accept God's way. The carnal, the normal human mind is enmity to God. It thinks it knows a better way. There is a way that really, truly seems better to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. We come up with all types of scenarios of things that we think would make us feel happy, feel good, feel fulfilled, that we might enjoy, and yet, if they are not in line with God's way, ultimately they bring disillusionment, discouragement, frustration, guilty consciences, 
and negative attitudes of all kinds. It just works that way. But to you and me, when we're considering a course of action, it seems like, hey, that would be the way to go. And people have been saying that for 6,000 years and it hasn't worked yet. And now we are at the end of the age again. And mankind is about to learn fear. So that they will be humbled and ready to accept Christ and David and their gentle, loving, kind rule on this earth. But human beings, as a whole, are utterly unwilling at this time to accept that kind of government, that kind of way of life. They think they know better. Whatever seems good, sounds good, feels good to me. And we do not look beyond the moment as a people. What would make me feel good now? And we don't tend to look at the consequences. I think I'll have another drink. It would make me feel better and happier now. And we're not thinking 12 hours down the road when we're hugging our porcelain idol and wishing we hadn't had that last drink. For one example. Now, that doesn't happen here, I know, but that's the way the world does it. Let's have fun fully on the consequences. <coughs> but there has to be a fundamental change in the way people think before the millennium can be set up. Now, it's easy to go to Isaiah 11 and some of those about the animals laying down together and children playing with snakes and so on. And that is only possible when people have accepted God's way and then God changes the nature of animals, of insects, of reptiles, and thorns and thistles and all the things that He put here or allowed the devil to, whichever it happened, way it happened, when they were kicked out of the garden. When life became difficult, we have not been willing to turn to God. And therefore, we live in the mess we have. What is it going to take? God knows. Now, He is a kind, loving, merciful God, isn't He? And yet, He is a violent God. He is an angry God. Because of what he sees. He became righteously very angry and indignant, and indignant with mankind and chose to wipe them all out. And then he backed off because of Noah and saved eight souls. But it was in his mind, he says so, to just wipe it all out. Forget it. I've had it with people. And it was in his mind at times to wipe all Israel out. And he finally wound up, I'll just divorce her. Divorce is a fairly final statement, you know. Out. No more. Done. Finished. So, there is that side of God. 
that will not tolerate sin. And when the millennium is set up, the new heavens and the new earth, there was an additional one to that that was touched on this morning that I didn't mention the other day in the book of Zechariah that I, I think I used in the series on how exclusive is the church. But here in Zechariah 14, I'll flash back for a moment. It's talking about the coming of Christ. It's talking about His feet standing on the Mount of Olives. And you go down to verse 8. It says, All His saints coming with Him in verse, in verse 5. And it shall be in that day, in the day that Christ returns to this earth, that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. There were two seas around the original Jerusalem, one east and one west. Now this is speaking of days of Christ's return. We always thought that the new heavens and new earth came after the great white throne judgment and that the earth had been burned to a crisp. We saw in Isaiah 65 and 66 in the sermon the other day that that is simply not the case. And that Christ and the Father will come with the new Jerusalem, the bride, at the beginning of the millennium, very clearly shown in Leviticus, I mean in uh, Revelation 19 through 21. And that there will still be human beings there, but those who are evil or sinful will not be allowed within the city, but only the Father, the Son, and the Bride. And that the waters will come out from under the throne to heal the nations, which shows that they still need healing in the great white throne and the uh, new heavens and new earth. And all flesh coming to worship in Isaiah 66 in the new heavens and new earth. So here, when Christ returns, the new Jerusalem will be set up, the Father and the Son will be here, and living waters will come out from the base of the throne, just as Revelation 21 shows. So we were wrong in our declarations, and there are many, many scriptures to prove that. Now, where was I when I got off on that? But there is, for a human being to become humble and become teachable, he has first to learn a fear of God. And these end-time events are going to cause that kind of fear... And then those minds are going to begin to think, maybe I should do it God's way. Maybe I really should, after all I've been through. And in the great white throne judgment, all those people who have led sinful lives, those who were old enough to have led them, will have been humbled by death, and they'll be ready to listen for the first time in their lives. So, God understands it is going to take His wrath, it is going to take violence and horrible death before man will begin to listen to Almighty God. Sad but true. That is why the end time message has to be so strong and a warning given, lest we who have been given opportunity to be part of that kingdom and to rule with Him on this earth, lose out because of our apathy, our Laodiceanism, our ho-humness, our being part of the ten virgins that slumbered and slept, and half of them in that analogy did not have oil sufficient to be in the kingdom.
Our day of salvation is now. And I'll tell you quite frankly, brethren, we blew it. And that is why we were kicked out of Worldwide. And that's why recreating Worldwide today will do no good because that is what God couldn't stand. Somehow, some way, we must reach deep down and find the heart, the mind, the emotion to turn to God in ways that are far beyond and much deeper than what we had in Worldwide. So that we are neither hot nor cold, but deeply convicted, deeply converted. Now, most of the church, according to Scripture, and I don't have time to go to all those, we've been there before, only a, about a 10% faithful remnant are going to respond even to the two witnesses when they come forth. Only about 10%. Read Haggai and Zechariah and other places. And Isaiah. The rest of the church, having been spit out of God's mouth and destroyed as an organization... Still and yet, 90% of it will go into the tribulation. Toward the end of the book of Zechariah, where we just were, it says that about 30% of them will repent during the tribulation. We have opportunity, and I know that this is a very difficult challenge, but we have opportunity today to come to have the depth of fear, awe, respect, and honor for Almighty God and His Son, that we turn to Him with our whole heart and are part of that faithful remnant that is, helps make up the 144,000 of His tens of thousands of saints who will return with Him. It will be easier for the people who survive and go into the millennium. Much easier. Satan will be bound. There will be a righteous government throughout the earth. Conditions will be peaceful. The land will be friendly. Everything will be different. And it will be much easier for those people than it is for you and me. When the great white throne judgment comes, not only will the Father, the Son, and the Bride now combine with millions, maybe billions, who knows how many will be born in a thousand years of peace on the earth, added to the family of God to take care of that 50, 60 billion that have existed from Adam till today, they estimate, to help them learn the way of God. Satan will only be loosed for a short season, apparently upon those who live right at the end of the millennium, but he will be rebound before the great white throne judgment begins, because those people, by and large, have already experienced the culture and the society of Satan, back from Adam until today, as they've lived. So they will not be faced with him. They will face 
billions of God beings there to help them and strengthen them so that they might too become a part of the kingdom of God. You and I have it tough. We face trials, troubles, tribulations, difficulties, and fears just as David did in the Psalms. Now, is that fair? That we have it so much tougher fighting Satan, fighting the world, and our human nature to be what we ought to be than any other group of people there ever will be to come. Is that fair? Well, no. It isn't all that fair in one sense. In another sense, it's more than fair because he said, if you will put up with all this and be the first fruits, I will give you greater reward by far than anyone else will ever receive. You can be the very bride of the Son of God, comprised of 144,000 first fruits, Zechariah 14, 4. These are the first fruits. No more, no less. You are called today to be the elite of the elite. Yes, we have Satan's New World Order boys trying to take over the leadership and rulership of the world. And indeed, they will succeed for a short while. But it will be an amalgamation of iron and miry clay in its foundation, and it will fail very rapidly. Because the greed and the selfishness and the vanity and ego of mankind cannot be subjugated or controlled. And even within that new world order, you're going to have various groups and peoples vying for the top spots to be the one in charge. And a house divided against itself cannot stand. So that which man is going to do at the behest of Satan will succeed for a very short while. And then it will collapse. And the King of Kings and Lord of Lords will take over. And not peace through peasants doing the work of the elite, but the elite of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Bride, will rule the world with a rod of iron, but with peace, prosperity, jobs for everyone, land for everyone, and what you do will not have pockets with holes in it. Everyone will prosper. What a beautiful, wonderful time we have to look forward to. But, in order to be the elite, we have to go through boot camp. We have to go through the things David went through. The things that the apostles went through. The things Christ went through. How? Can we have like minds and like attitudes of Christ himself 
if we have not walked a mile in his moccasins. Maybe it's a long mile. But more is offered to the first fruits than to any other group. I know we know that. But let's understand that with that comes greater responsibility, greater judgment. But if we pass, we are given more than anyone will ever have. With that background, then, let's get at least a little bit into the book of Psalms, because it does start a certain way and progress through 150 chapters or hymns or poems, and there is a move forward in the timeline and prophetic story. There are flashbacks and flashes forward throughout the book. But the general theme starts out with the futility of man and goes forward from there. So, we, the end-time church, are faced with a culmination of the sins of man, the futility of man, and we are about to face the wrath of Satan, the devil, followed by the wrath of God. So, it starts out here. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Now, it, in a way, is a negative statement, isn't it? Because it talks about the ungodly, the sinner, and the scornful. But it is positive in force in that blessed is the man that doesn't go the way of mankind that doesn't go the way the rest of society is headed. So it is a statement of contrasts. It contrasts Satan's way, the evil way, the worldly way, with the way of God, and shows that blessing will come to him who stays away from the way of man and Satan. But his delight is in the law of the eternal, and in his law does he meditate day and night. Now, that's what it takes for us to throw off satanic thinking and worldly, socially acceptable today culture that we find around us. It takes meditating and thinking on God's law and in His ways day and night. It isn't that... You become righteous if you study your Bible and pray an hour a day or a half hour a day or whatever standard, whatever preacher you had back in Worldwide gave you. It wasn't so much emphasized that you needed that as it was, it is your duty to do that. And it became a matter of time, a matter of rote, a matter of habit. So what you got out of it, you had to get that study in, even if you had your head on your Bible through half of it, but by the clock you got in your Bible study today, and you got in your prayer, even though you may have been on your knees snoring into your pillow. It was that this has to be done. 
Now let's look at that a little differently. As is suggested here. We have an evil way of living and thinking all around us. It permeates the airwaves, video, and audio. Satan can even tune in to your mind without speakers and electronic gadgets and can cause your mind to go different and wrong ways. He is the prince of the power of the air and can influence you without sight or sound and you don't even sometimes know it. He has that power. You must... Be close to God. Draw near to God, it says in Peter, and he will draw near to you. Stay away from Satan, and he will flee from you if you draw near to God. This is not a matter of putting in our time. This is a matter of desperate need. If we are to think the thoughts and live the life, of Christ on this earth, we have to stay close to God because you cannot fight human nature alone. You can't do it. I've tried it. You've tried it. It doesn't work out too well for you. You have to be near God in order to face temptation and whip it. Now, sometimes people with a certain amount of will worship can direct their path to some degree. But to truly do it and walk in the Spirit, you have to be close to God and be filled with His Spirit. Otherwise, your reactions are human and carnal. Your words are human and carnal. And we all have enough of those, but it's very obvious these are desperate times. We need to seek God with our whole heart, not with a fourth of it, not half of it, not three-fourths of it. But it's the time of grace, space for repentance for you and me, because judgment is now upon us, is drawing near. A decision has to be made soon about you and me. Some of you, simply by the passage of time and age, are not going to live too much longer without intervention from God. Maybe me included. Some of you who think you are young and still can live forever can run into a semi and die any moment. Or there are many, many different ways to die. You take a pick. There's lots of ways. But, apart from all that, and normal time and chance and, and life on the earth, the end of this age is drawing very near. And the time of our final judgment, we're being judged day by day, but the final decision will have to be made before too many years expire. About you and about me. So these are desperate times for people who still have faults, problems, weaknesses, and difficulties. To be sure our attitudes are right. And that's how the book of Psalm opens. First Psalm. Blessed if you turn to God. Have your delight in the law of God. Otherwise, we go the way of all flesh and the way of all mankind before us, right? Now, beautifully, God has given us this record 
through the Bible and in the Psalms themselves, and specifically here, of the trials, troubles, struggles of two men of God at least, David and the Son of God, and the attitudes and difficulties they faced and what it was required of them to live the kind of life they should live. Christ never goofed. David goofed fairly regularly. But his heart was of repentance when it happened and trying to draw as close to God as he possibly could. Now, you and I are a lot more like David in that sense than we are like Christ. We still make our mistakes. But space is given for repentance and forgiveness. And we can still move forward every day, as Lamentation says, with the sun coming up, we're given a clean slate. Ah, that we could give each other a clean slate and think like God does. Anyway, a man who will avoid these things has his delight in the law of the eternal, and in his law does he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. Interestingly, I think that's a prophetic statement. We just read in Zechariah 14 about the new heavens and new earth coming at the time Christ returns. That is echoed in Revelation 21, or actually chapter 22, where once that is established, the trees along the river coming out from under the throne in both directions will provide fruit year-round to heal the nations that still are in desperate need of healing. So, is this a prophecy that projects forward to that time? Same kind of language. <clears throat> so he's saying, from Adam and Eve on down, everything is pointed toward the beauty of the rule of the Father and Son and the Bride on this earth. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. What is the message that he says to give there in Isaiah 40? Where he says at the beginning of that, and it's a break, it's, a, it's right at the end of Worldwide Church of God when Hezekiah's story is done, when his sons would be sold into Babylon, and, but he would have peace in his time. And his sons would become eunuchs in Babylon, which they did. And we became spiritual eunuchs out in this world after Herbert Armstrong died. But there's a change in message in Isaiah 40. It says, Speak comfortably to my people, that her warfare is accomplished. So there is an overall message that peace and safety and good is coming. And yet then it, down below that it says, Cry. And Isaiah says, Well, what should I cry? cry that all flesh is as grass and will wither like grass. So even though good times are coming and are getting near, still we have a very hard message of how everything on this earth is going to burn up. And that projects forward to the book of Revelation, where the creatures in the sea die and the trees and the green things on the earth are burned up in these end time events. So Isaiah 40 is projecting to the two witnesses and the message of comfort, and yet, with it, there is a very difficult message of crying about grass withering. Just like with John in the book of Revelation, 
eat this roll. It'll taste sweet in your mouth, speak comfortably, and yet it's going to give you stomach problems. Because before the sweetness of the message of the kingdom of God comes, there is much bitterness to behold. But there is a way to escape that. And that is to obey God now. And he says, I will protect you from it. Pray that when you flee to the mountains of Judea, the real Judea, by the way, the mountains of the eternal, there you will be protected in Zion. We'll see a lot of that as we go on into this book. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand at the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Pray that you be accounted worthy to escape these things that are coming, because God will not tolerate sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What did we read recently in Jude? About how... Some will have eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin while they feast from you, with you, spotting your feasts. God is going to purge His church. That's what He's doing right now by spinning it out of His mouth. And He's going to purge it again when the remnant even, the faithful remnant, Some of them will not be allowed to escape to Zion. And that's what that flight in Matthew 24 is all about. Those of the faithful remnant are going to have a final cut. And we're to pray, even if we make that group, that we be accounted worthy to escape. For the eternal knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So mankind can do whatever he wants, but it is going to do no good. And if we don't turn to God, we're going to suffer the fate of the rest of mankind. So he opens this first psalm with a very, very powerful message. I have a little time. Let's see if we can get through chapter 2 as well. That cuts this from a three-year down to a a year-and-a-half series. We get to at least two chapters. Well, I do feel it was important to lay some background first of the importance of this, not just as bedtime stories or something to read to to put yourself to sleep at night and nice sayings, but there's a great deal more to this book of Psalms than meets the eye. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Isn't it against yourself? There's a statement in the New Testament about people, let's see, how is that exactly, if I can say it, that oppose themselves. We get in our own way. Mankind, since Adam and Eve, has gotten in his own way. Why do the heathen rage and imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the eternal and against his anointed. Now there is... The first prophecy of Christ, right there. They set themselves against the anointed of God and killed Him. And they set themselves against His disciples, His apostles, and killed them, save John. 
and many, many other hundreds and thousands of first fruits in that age. And Matthew 24 and Luke 21 show that they were about to turn that venom loose on those called here in the end time. And many of them will also be martyred, save those who are faithful and used to do the end time work, the remnant of Haggai and Zechariah. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. They say, we'll get away with this. We will go against God and against these people that claim to serve God. We'll get away with it. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The eternal shall have them in derision. They stand up on their hind legs and act like they're so important and so powerful. But everything they do is going to be a house of cards thrown to the wind. Humpty Dumpty will be on the ground and no one can put him back together again. God laughs at what's going on on this earth. He is in control. Then shall he speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Even as he did in the days of Noah, even as he did in sending Israel into the captivity, even as he derided the Pharisees in his day and called them all kinds of hateful names, he is going to set his hand in vexation and violence against this world and its people and its sin. It's coming. Yet, in spite of this, in spite of his anger, in spite of his vexation, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. He is going to set his government up, and he is going to show the world the way it has to be. That's why a rule of a rod of iron is required. Christ is the one to gently lead the sheep. Yes. But until they turn from goats and into sheep, that rod will come down. I will declare the decree. The Eternal has said to me, You are my son. This day have I begotten you. So he prophesied early in the Psalms of Christ and how the problems, the way of man, is going to be deposed. And he started the process through sending Christ 2,000 years ago to live the perfect life and begin to get the setting of Christ on the hill of Zion in the picture. To start the process of getting him there. Ask of me, and I shall give you the heathen for your inheritance. That's what he says. Serve God, serve his Son, and we will inherit that which the earth wants, the men of the earth want to inherit. They want to inherit the earth and rule it. And he says, if you'll turn to me, I'll give that to you. You just have to live my way instead of their way. What's their way doing anyway? Creating murder and rape and abortion and hatred and divorce, frustration, suicide, wars. What good is their way doing? Not much that I've noticed, but it's so appealing sometimes. 
and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. We shall reign on the earth. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Now, this is speaking specifically of Christ. It is His rule being discussed here overall. Now, we will rule with Him, so we're a part of it, but it's a direct prophecy of Him. <clears throat> Satan offered Him, specifically, rulership of the earth. He said, no, I'll accept it from my Father, but not from you. You're going bye-bye. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. You may think you can rule the earth, but it isn't going to happen. I'm going to send Christ with a rod of iron. He's going to rule the earth. So, give a listen. This is pretty good advice. Starting out, explaining what mankind is and has been on this earth. This is the deplorable place that God begins to say, Hey, I've got an answer to your problems, people. Serve the eternal with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's why we come to keep the Feast of Tabernacles and learn to fear the eternal. Until mankind has shaken in his boots and feared to the place he hid in the rocks and cried for them to come down on top of him. Until man experiences that, he will not fear God, he will not be humbled before God, he will not listen to God, nor even really acknowledge God. This is what it's going to take. And he serves warning right here at the very beginning of this book. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish from the way. Affection for our elder brother and soon-to-be husband. He has the answers. Lest you perish from the way, when His wrath is kindled but a little. He can kill us very easily. He has the power. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. That starts with the first fruits. If we put our trust in Him, we will be blessed and we will be given an opportunity to take those people who have just had the living daylight scared out of them and for once in their miserable lives are going to be ready to listen. And you can be a voice behind them saying, this is the way. Walk in it. Do you begin to see why I think going into the Psalms is important at the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles?